Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, which is produced at the Australian National University's Crawford School of Public Policy and co-hosted by me, Sharon Bessel. I'm a Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School and Director of the Children's Policy Centre. And beside you, Sharon, Anna Hunter, cardiologist, physician and a Human Futures Fellow with the ANU College of Health and Medicine. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. Sharon Bessel, how has your week been? Anikrita Hunter, it's good to be with you. My week has been quite fabulous, I must say. I am back in Tasmania, Lutruita, um, doing some research with children, which is absolutely my favourite thing. And Anikrita, you will be delighted to hear that in that research, we were talking with a, a group of children about what would make life better. And a little girl who's six came up with the idea of a kindness challenge. And she said, in our communities, everyone needs to be challenged to be kind and caring to everyone else. There should be no winners. Uh, sorry, there should be no losers in this challenge, only winners, and we all should care for each other. Um, and as this amazing six-year-old was talking about the importance of care and kindness, I, of course, was thinking of you and the, the conversations that, that we have. We can learn a lot by listening to children. <laughs> Absolutely, we can. So it seems to be lovely to be back recording the next episode of Policy Forum Pod, and I'm coming today from Ngunnawal Country here in Canberra. Sharon, what are we going to be talking about today? This is a conversation that I am really, really looking forward to, and I know you are too, Aunt Greta. Um, this year, we will make one of the most important decisions in Australia's history as we vote on whether to accept the constitutional change that will recognise the First Peoples of Australia by enshrining a voice to Parliament. It is a decision that will reflect how we reconcile our past and how we build our future. And it's a decision that will shape the very soul of our nation. As debates intensify at the federal level, South Australia has moved ahead of the rest of the country. And on the 26th of March this year, it became the first jurisdiction in Australia to establish a voice to Parliament for First Nations people. So that is such an important and exciting moment in time. To talk through the nature of the South Australian voice to Parliament, what it means for Indigenous peoples in that state, and what the nation can learn from it, we are delighted to be joined by Dale Aegis today. Dale is the inaugural Commissioner for the First Nations Voice in South Australia. And in that role, Dale has been central to the establishment of the voice. 
listeners, we'll, we'll just remind you here that we do love speaking to people around the country and around the world, but sometimes the technology can be just a little bit challenging. This conversation with Dale Aegis is a remarkable one, uh, but it's not up to our usual audio quality. So please accept our apologies and stick with us. The conversation is definitely worth listening to. Dale, welcome. It's wonderful to have you with us today. We'd love to begin by asking our guests to introduce themselves to our audience. And I wonder if you might share with us some of your background. What led you to the role of the Commissioner at this incredibly significant moment in history? Sure. And uh, thank you for having me. Uh, so my name's Dale Agus. I'm a Ghana Naranga Naranji um, Naranja man. Um, so I've got strong connections with um, different range of Aboriginal nation groups here in South Australia. Um, in terms of professional background, um, I was the previous Director of Aboriginal Practice and Partnerships in the Department of Human Services in South Australia. Uh, I was the Manager of Metropolitan Aboriginal Youth and Family Services, so having that sort of lead role for a service that leads Aboriginal cultural responsive services um, to disconnected and disengaged Aboriginal youth and families. Uh, before that, I was... Um, a ministerial liaison officer to two ministers. Um, I was executive officer in the um, Treaty Commission here in South Australia and also two, pre two previous Aboriginal engagement commissioners here, which, um, which is a structural position which supports individual cases um, in the government sector and, of course, does some advocacy work to the government. Um, and before that, I was a, a group facilitator in the in Department of Correctional Services working with high-risk offenders and doing group therapy work. Um, so that, that's sort of my, my, my professional background. And then, of course, I'm, I'm known here in South Australia to be the chair of the um, the State Aboriginal Football Network Carnival. Um, I also am, um, I was a sitting member on the Youth Review Board here in South Australia, which is, of course, the, the youth sort of version of the, of the Youth Parole Board. Um, so in terms of community background, governance work, board work, and then professional work. It's, I guess, in terms of how I sort of view that leading into taking on this role was all those things led to something um, and it was coming towards, you know, taking a leading role and putting forward a structural reform in South Australia. And so, Dale, you're now that first inaugural commissioner for the First Nations Voice in South Australia, and it's an extraordinary background that you bring to this role. I'd love to hear a bit about the vo how the voice is going to operate in South Australia. Can you tell us about what you've achieved so far there? Yeah, sure. Um, so after, after two rounds of community engagement, um, we've come up with some, with some legislation um, and also a draft model. Um, so just in terms of sh in short of what that model is, is the model is designed to have um, regional coordination of regional governments, which we're, what we're calling um, regional local voices here in South Australia. Um, and that'll be the state um, in, um, divided into, into six regions um, with six local um, voice nation groups across the, across the state. From there, um, we'll have the co-chairs being a male and a female who will be selected up to be on the on the state First Nations voice. Um, so the, the roles and purpose of each of those, those sort of groups would be that the local First Nations voice in the regions 
will have specific, um, I guess, remit to do local coordination across their region, um, which of course some regions might have five, six, seven, eight local council districts in their region. They of course will have um, housing officers, child protection officers, police stations, um, schools and hospitals, which they will be able to coordinate some local solutions. Um, that, that's the role and that's the role for the uh, role and purpose for the local First Nations voice. Then in terms of the state body, um, what we've got designed for them is uh, to have the ability, according to the legislation, to speak to the Houses of Parliament. And what they'll be entitled to do as part of the um, the process within Parliament here in South Australia. So they're not sitting outside, alongside, reporting to a committee, going to another group, going to an agency. They are built in within the format of the Parliament and they're able to um, do an annual address or an annual report to the Parliament. Um, that report is, of course, tabled in a joint sitting between both Houses of Parliament um, or at the choice of the State First Nations Chairs and the Premier. They could do independent sittings. That's point one. Point two is the State First Nations Voice is able to speak to the Premier and, and the Ministers um, around what the government is doing in terms of their responsibility to addressing and having some inclusive engagement with Aboriginal communities in the way they design and address legislation and policies and programs and initiatives. Then the third part is um, having the ability to speak with the Premier and Government Chief Executive Officers, of course, who have the lead responsibility to delivering. Um, the fourth part we've got in our legislation is doing what we've called an engagement hearing, which is the South Australian um, chairs of our voice have the ability to bring um, or request to speak to the Premier, any Government Minister and any Public Sector ch um, Chief Executive Officer to raise questions around what they're doing as a collective in specific issues relating to our, our, our communities. For example, they might say they want to speak to youth, anything that the, that the government's doing around the youth sector and Aboriginal groups. You can imagine the responsible ministers and responsible um, chief executives in that conversation who are brought together collectively um, to put forward what they're actually doing as a, as a collective arrangement of government resources addressing our problems. That's all based on the, on the feedback we've got from our communities on how they wanted and where they wanted to, where they thought the important points of engaging with the parliament, the government, the public sector, really lay at the heart of problem solving for our communities. Dale, it's, it's a really extraordinary model that you've described and clearly so deeply thought through in terms of what's going to have the most impact. But I wonder if we could just take a step back for a moment and talk about why the voice is so important. And I'd love to hear from you why this matters in terms of coming to terms with history, in terms of addressing the deep injustices that continue to today, but also in terms of creating a more just future. Yeah, all, all good points that, that were generally raised in, in, our, in our community consults. We had um, strong community feedback that they're tired of feeling excluded, isolated, and further separated from the general process of decision-making as people and as communities. And, you know, that strong sense of overwhelming do to us, not include us. 
Um, and, you know, just, just, just that sense of having to do to and feeling further excluded led to that strong sense of injustice. You know, who are we and where do we fit in this whole process? Are you including us in, our, in, in these systems? You know, you say that we're Australians and we're not brought to the table. You say that, you know, we deserve um, equality. But what does that mean? Because our, indi- our indicators and what happens on the ground tells us differently. Um, the lived experience that we've got from the community in South Australia is feel very, very isolated. Um, and, you know, going from a couple of years of feeling like their their funding has been withdrawn, their decision-making has been disempowered, their communities have been separated from the service sector in terms of how it connects up across the state, there was just extreme levels of frustration and discontentment and disheartenment um, from our communities and, and they thought that doing some structural reform could at least get them at the table. Um, you know, the, the idea that the, that the voice is the silver bullet, it's not that. It, it is the opportunity for our communities to come and sit at the table so we can take our information away from the media, away from politicians, away from bureaucrats, away from the NGO sector and have them as raw and real as we wanted to and have them presented to the parliament and that be the table in terms of the platform on how our communities engage going forward with the government. It's such a powerful framework, the idea that we shift from doing to to, to doing with, um, doing things together. Dale, consultation's been in a really important part of this process in South Australia. We can hear it already through the description that you've given us. You've obviously spoken with Aboriginal people across the state. You've talked about what the voice might mean, what it might look like, and how it might address inequality and discrimination. This process of consultation, of, sh- of sharing, of, of yarning, can look quite different in Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities. And I'd love to hear a bit about how that consultation process played out. Is consultation a good word? Are there other words that we might use to describe it? Um, And what sort of things did you hear from communities? I think you've probably already given us a bit of them. Yeah, and and good points of clarity to to, to work out, you know, because understanding how generally consultation, you know, we see this consultation approach happening on the federal level at the moment where they're drop-ins, dropping bombs, fly-ins, fly-outs, you know, just having a, a quick mirror look at something and then all of a sudden making a quick, knee-jerk reaction and response to what's happening on the ground. Um, the benefit we had here in South Australia is, um, is that, well, I guess I'm a familiar face to some of the, to, to some of the communities. Um, and the, the initial response I got from our communities was, um, we've been waiting for you. Um, and, you know, I got that in the sense, and I, and I still get a bit of goosebumps when I say that um, out loud, because it, it's not in the fact they've been waiting for me personally. Um, they've been waiting for the person who continues on this journey and this conversation. You know, who's going to lead this process for us, um, this important process which can redesign and reshift the way that we engage in the higher levels of decision-making. Um, and, you know, for for the bureaucracies and for government, that's consultation. But for, for us as, as our communities, it's continuing our journey and our legacy of how we reform and reshape our community's history and our standing and the higher ends of decision making, you know. So, and I say that don't say that very lightly because it's it's a heavy responsibility. Um, I, I have to say that, and it's a it's one that I, I take with honour and respect. Um, you know that I'm carrying the message from our 
South Australian communities where I've done over 40 sessions publicly. Um, of course, I have um, phone calls every day, emails every day, conversations. You know, I'm based in Adelaide and I might be speaking to someone in Port Lincoln, Sejuna, Maralinga, Yalata, Mount Gambia, the APY lands, um, once every every day around how they think that the that the voice needs to inform the conversation at the table. Um, so having their input into every step of the way um, in terms of the legislation and the model is the key to where we've got to this point. You know, I, I don't say that lightly. Is um, There was a lot of, um, you know, community voices who wanted to shape things up on the ground and wanted to connect with the voice and feel like this should be community-led and community-owned and we need to make sure that was forefront with everything. There was a lot of conversations with um, the previous ACTIC commissioners who were involved in South Australia who thought that having the connection to the state bodies um, was, was a key initiative on how we could shape up and influence policies and legislations to drive our communities. And then, of course, we had our leaders and elders um, who were just saying that it's time for change. What's happened in the past in South Australia isn't working. If you're going to give us an option which brings us at the table, please shape it up and give us enough autonomy and self-determination in our legislation for our people to feel safe and to feel um, they have the ability to talk straight. You know, none of that sort of dodging and weaving to please people. We want to talk straight to the parliament. And I think that was very important. Dale, that comment you made about people saying, you know, we've been waiting for you, I think is, is just so powerful and it reinforces what a moment in history this, this is. And, and Dale, you've described earlier the, the, the multiple ways in which the voice enables engagement with decision makers in South Australia in, in, in different ways but at different points in the process. And as you said, it's, it's not a silver bullet, nothing is, but it's an incredibly important step forward. How do you think the voice is likely to affect the everyday lives of Aboriginal people in South Australia? And also, how do you think it's it's going to transform the policy-making process for, for Indigenous people, but perhaps more broadly? Yeah, yeah. Um, very good questions. And, and you know, um, trying to make this relatable for, for people to grasp is is part of the challenge too. And, and some of that is is hearing the conversation when I've heard Sally Scales speak, speak here in South Australia, you know, where she describes an example where, you know, the a community in, in the APY lands had asked for support to do um, child rearing, um, food support in terms of, the, you know, lowering the cost of food in, in regional and rural communities, um, support with fresh drinking water and support with um with with infant support in the communities and what they got from the government was a program um, to help grow vegetables in the communities and so the community are thinking so we've asked for to help with trouble freight to bring food to our communities we've helped with drinking water we've asked for help with um with um nutrition for our infants and you think growing food in the driest place in Australia is the way that we're going to get out of it. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a million-dollar investment in that. And then, of course, when the when the garden doesn't grow in the driest place in Australia, 
Um, the community gets blamed for that. They get blamed for the continuing malnutrition of their of their children, and they get blamed for the heavy cost of food. Um, so, in actual fact, is the community has asked for some level of support in a direct area of responsibility from the government. They get something different, and then they get blamed for all of it. Um, so, how does that play out in a way where community, government, and the broader population understand what's going on when we say there's a disconnect? There's a complete disconnect for what we're asking for in the service responses we need in funding, which would hit the ground on the community for us to have a real difference, you know, where mothers are able to support um, their their infants and child raising in a way that's healthy and responsible in terms of nutrition and health, not to grow a garden bed in the backyard in the driest place in Australia. Um, so it's just, it's just things like that, you know, that that's an example for a practical example on the ground. And, of course, the more... The more bigger picture stuff with, you know, having some sort of engagement with the child protection system. You know, so in South Australia here, we've got the um, the Commissioner for um, Young People, um, Commissioner April Laurie, who's just done a report, you know, which which focuses on, on some of the instances of disengagement between the community and the government sector here. Um, and the community want to play that out in a way that's authentic truth-telling from communities to the Commissioner to the Child Protection Department and to the Parliament. What's happening when we're saying child place principles under the Aboriginal principles aren't working with kinship care? What and why is it happening in, in that from the community perspective? Not brushed aside in a westernised assessment um, in a way that's, that sort of separates Aboriginal way, way of living and worldview and child raising and puts it in a category that's not suitable um, in terms of an um, assessment from the department. Um, how do we get our Aboriginal caregivers um, to be have to feel comfortable to have the ability to put their hands forward to be foster parents of their of, of, of kinship people, of their kinship families? I mean, in a way that's supported. You know, it's not just a grandma raising um, a baby. They're actually a carer and they should be supported and resourced in a way that is like any other carer is supported and resourced to raise that child. Um, so that, that there's sort of, you know, there's, there's policies and issues which happens around these things, which is seen by Aboriginal leaders in that space and by the key NGO sectors in that space, which probably need to play out a little bit more authentically in a way that gives us greater insight into those gaps of, I guess, understanding in terms of the knowledge base of, of, of theory of Aboriginal worldview and Aboriginal child raising and also the way that it supports for resources. And that's probably mirrored in, in terms of what could happen in, um, in correctional services, in SAPOL, South Australian Aboriginal Police Force, in courts and in the Department of Human Services, which oversees the youth justice sector. And, and I guess that's just a broad example. You know, if, if, we, if we say, if we just sort of drop the hat of saying, you know, having truth-telling of the Australian history in the, in, the, in the education curriculum within the education department, I think more broadly our community know exactly what I mean by that. Dale, they are incredibly powerful examples, you know, and, and examples that go to, to people's everyday lives, you know, right through to how we, we think completely differently about systems. And I hear you talking about, you know, what, how we can think differently from an Aboriginal worldview and from 
um, Aboriginal child raising practices. And I, I think um, this is so important for Aboriginal people, but it is important for this country. One of the things that Anna Greta and I talk a great deal about on this podcast is the importance of valuing care. And I think that the entire country can look to these conversations and say, how can we think differently? How can we think in ways that put care and connection right at the centre of, of everything that we do? I think we'll, we'll take just a short break there, Dale. There's a lot more to talk about. So we will be back in just a moment. Don't go away. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Dale Aegis talking about the South Australian First Nations Voice to Parliament. Dale, you've described some of the processes of consultation that led up to the establishment of the Voice in South Australia, and you've described them as, as laying the foundation for a state-based implementation of the Uluru Statement from the Heart and for leading towards treaty and truth-telling. And I wonder if you could just talk us through what those processes of, of treaty and truth-telling might look like as we move forward from this point. Yeah, great question. Um, I think the, the, the point to reaffirm for South Australia is um, the South Australian government commitment is to, is to implement the early stem from the heart in full. Um, of course, as we know, that's uh, voice, treaty and truth. Um, by the end of the year, we're hoping that the nomination and election process for the voice here in South Australia will see the elections and the, the representatives be elected from the communities to take up those positions on the voice. Um, that will mean in terms of by the end of 2023, the first commitment um, of the voice would have been completed in South Australia. Of course, what that means for the South Australian government here is how do they move on to the second sequencing of treaty and, and Makarata and agreement making in South Australia? Going from, I guess, the, the previous process where we had um, treaty making here in South Australia is looking at what are the learnings that we've got from that point? Because as we know, the, the, the Labor government at that time had progressed talks to talk to um, leadership bodies around what treaties would look like as a, a state-based approach. And then, of course, coming in to that was um, the, the previous Liberal government who then dismantled the treaty process 
and the and the nation building components that were un, underpinning some of the leader to leader conversations and um, regional authority platforms here in South Australia, which gave nation groups a platform to formulate um, regional authorities here in South Australia. I guess so. So what that means is um, the South Australian people here now are waiting for the government to to put forward what they see as the next steps for treaty. Of course, what that means here for South Australia, for in South Australia is where do native title groups or those groups who have been given um, consent determination and also those groups who haven't been um, given a determination, where do they fit at the table so at the table within the conversation to lead and drive treaties? Because in essence, what, what we've got with our model in South Australia is the voice is set up to, um, you know, raise array of social issues, um, what's happening in communities directly to directly to the parliament and to decision makers in the public sector. So the next point is at which leadership group would be the ones who drive and lead Macarada and Treaty. And that's something we need to start thinking about as a community here in South Australia. And you know, maybe do some advocacy work with the with the South Australian government or alternatively alternatively wait to see what the South Australian government here uh, want to drive and deliver for that for that for their commitment going into their their second year of government um, coming off and you know having the su- successful implementation of a voice in South Australia what's point two look like so we're a little bit unsure and a bit grey on that at the moment and I think that'll be progressed once we once we get the voice up and running. It's it's fair to say that so much has already been achieved in South Australia. It's just it's extraordinary to hear this, the process of the last few years. It's and it's inspirational for a federal discussion. And I thought perhaps we could turn our attention now to what's been happening nationally. We're embarking on on what feels like it could be quite a long couple of months of debate around the voice to federal parliament. You've been part of the national referendum working group. What can we learn to inform this national discussion from this process that South Australia has been through? What sort of advice are you giving to your national friends and colleagues? <laughs> yeah, I say that with a bit of a bit of a giggle because, um, you know, I guess I guess there is a there is a clear point of difference in the South Australian process and the national process, and that of course is the key element of a referendum. Um, what we've done in South Australia is able to progress forward um, a design and a model that is supported by community engagement and community consultation to give us legislation and a model. What the referendum is asking is asking the federal government for the people of Australia to give the federal government and the parliament the power to do what South Australia has done. Um, And the way that that's been sort of um, articulated from the federal um, messaging is in in the principal designs of what a federal voice would look like. So, you know, what is the background in in terms of what a voice at a federal level hopes to achieve, guided by some some practical principles? Um, As said in the the state process, I've been able to go and do a heavy round of consultation to finalise our model. That would be the intent of the federal process. If the Australian people empower the Australian government by voting yes, um, it, what it does is it triggers the Australian government to have the authority given by the Australian people to discuss with the Australian and Torres Strait Islander communities on what a final model and design would look like. 
I think that's the, the, the key point of difference between the, the state and federal process. Um, within that, of course, there's there's an other array of of challenges which which come forward with the messaging, you know, because it's it's hard to contextualise the influence of a federal voice without seeing it in practice. So another key point, I guess, is for South Australia and the federal process is, um, and what comes out of the the, the Langton Karma report is jurisdictions in terms of South Australian states setting up themselves to connect with their communities in a formal arrangement which gives them a voice to their state parliament which can connect on to the federal parliament. Um, there's a lot of conjecture on how that's been how that should and can be done. I think South Australia has just lays a blueprint on how that could be done. Uh, that, I guess that's in a nutshell the points of difference between um, the process, um, the consultations that would be yet to be yet to come after a successful referendum and then having South Australia only as a possible design for other jurisdictions shaping up their states and then the more broader work with further consultation would be how do those states connect into the federal federal body. Um, but, uh, but, of course, the South Australian way isn't the only way. I'm sure other states will come up with their own best ways to connect with their communities, as you'd hope they would do, which will come up with further consultation, which has been committed to post the referendum. Dad, I, I do think it's so useful for us to have a model that is already laid out um, as one possible option because it does make this process feel so much more concrete in terms of what's achievable and what can be done. I, I did want to get your thoughts um, a, a little more around some of the national conversations that are emerging. And in the past few weeks, um, nationally, the No campaign has become more prominent and discussion in some parts of the country is, is becoming more fractious and, and I think it's fair to say it's becoming distressing um, in, in some places and as Anna Greta said, we've, we've still got quite a long way to go. I, and I've got to say, I find it difficult to even imagine what happens if we wake up on the morning after the national referendum and the vote has been no. You know, I, I can't even bear to contemplate that to be frank. I'd really love to hear from you what your advice is for supporters of The Voice in how to address some of the concerns that are now being raised by, by friends, by colleagues, by family members in other parts of our community um, about the referendum. You know, how do we respond to some of those concerns that are, that are being raised in a way that brings people on this journey towards a yes vote? Yeah, such a such a challenging question, and particularly, I, I think I'll say up front is such so, such hard work and hard yards from those people who are supporting us and feeling the confrontation between the no vote. Um, so, a, a big shout out to those people who are supporting the yes campaign, whether you be Aboriginal or an ally or a supporter, or an ancient supporter. Thank you so much. Um, your work is invaluable to driving this process. Um, Secondly, is you know how do you how do you get in the conversation down in the detail? We're down in the in the contextualising of the principles um, at the federal level. Um, is it, based on, on on notions of empowerment. You know that they're based on notions of 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 bringing accuracy and transparency and accountability and the rule of law. I think the four principles that you know, and there's there's principles within the, within the Karma Langdon Report, which which are very important to familiarise ourselves with, with why this could be done in a way that supports 
the autonomy of Aboriginal communities in a way that represent themselves. Because I, I think a key point that has been driving for the No campaign is these are going to be elected with the same old, same old. That could be said for what the South running process was as well until we did further consultation and we've set up a principled way on how grassroots community can be um, nominated and elected. Um, so the intention for the federal voice is that Aboriginal communities will elect their representatives. They're not going to be the same old, same old. There could be different views, fresh views. Um, from the South Australian process is that we've learned is there are a lot of up-and-coming, strong, intelligent, educated, grassroots-connected, um, strong in culture who, who speak for communities. This is the opportunity that we're talking about. Um, you know, so we, we want to depoliticise our issues. We want to demediarise our issues. We want to do something in a way that's transparent and accountable where communities get their voices heard. You know, and this idea that it's a centralised voice that runs out of the bubble of Canberra. Well, that's not true either. Um, you know, our communities, I go to Canberra um, once every six weeks. I'm still, when I'm not in Canberra, back out in South Australian communities, engaging with our communities to set up what is now the South Australian voice process and hearing directly from them their concerns and issues on the ground so I can work out a model for South Australia. Um, so that's, I guess, some of the, the blueprints of what the South Australian model can can really project out is some of this falsizing of what will happen with with some of the process. And, you know, some of it is blown out of proportion. Let's keep it real and practical um, and not by fly-in, fly-outs, by high-level politicians who want to get political points to win a, a voting case. Let's have our communities discuss our real issues and our real concerns and not by Aboriginal representatives of politicians, of community people who live every day in their communities, who don't want to win seats in parliament, but who want to make a difference in their communities to make change for better outcomes for our communities. And that's, you know, that's hard to see through when you've got such polarising media presenting political notions on our business. And, you know, this business is now the Australian business and, you know, the Australian population trying to see through that with some level of of clarity with Aboriginal people, with why Aboriginal people feel discontent, feel excluded, feel isolated, feel they're, they're spoken for without accuracy or true representation and feel that they want to do things in an accountable way that operates like everything else under the rule of law, which is why the the, the expert group has have advised things on the way where they've landed. It's been a lot of heavy discussions, um, a lot of leadership from, from our leaders and a lot of informed conversations with people on the ground. And, and I think that's, that's not seen enough, unfortunately, through the media on and the, you know, the engagement group. The working group is one part of the, the, the federal advice, but the engagement group, which consists of over 60 Aboriginal people who live and work in communities, also giving advice to the government and connecting on ground. You know, where are we focused on with this media attention? Why do the two leaders get all of it and the Aboriginal people connecting in the process get none? 
a clear bias of the media in terms of who they're projecting their their, their perspectives to. Just how I feel. It's a, a respectful conversation just seems to be so centrally important to this process. And at its core, the process is at least beginning to address ideas of reconciliation and coming to terms with the process of colonisation. And so we could talk to you, Dale, for a very long time. It's been so extraordinary listening to your insight on this discussion. Um, and I really hope we have an opportunity to invite you back at some point. But as we draw the conversation to the close, I'd love to talk about some of the more hopeful issues. If we wake up on a day after the referendum and it's a resounding yes, what do you think that that will mean for the soul and identity of our country? Yeah, very good question. And sorry, I missed the last one about saying if it's a no. I think the important things for for all of Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people remember is that we are First Nations people. We are strong with our culture and country. This is still our country. You know, regardless of the way the Australia votes and the social conscience, that's up to Australia. As Aboriginal people, we are owners of Australia and that will never be said or never be changed by a vote or referendum. Um, and that needs to be empowered among our leaders and our young people who are facing some of the hard brightness of some of this conversation. Our young people need to be... Um, constantly reminded that you are First Nations. Um, secondly, if, if, if we are um, supported by the, the broad Australian public and, and they see that having our voices heard in an accurate, honest, transparent and accountable way that operates on the rule of law in the parliament serves as a way to break away from all the waste, you know, and we can actually be accountable from, from point A to point B to point C, and get true and accurate evaluations on the information that is presented by our communities, that to us is a true measure of having authentic conversations with our people. Um, so if we are to do that, it would be so uplifting that we could have conversations and contribute to positive outcomes for our people. But what that means for the broader population is we'll be able to get more accountability on our resources that are hit, that are not hitting the ground. You know, we have inquiry after report, after committee, all assessing on what's going wrong, and we don't ask the people on the ground. That is the point of difference here, is that we're asking the people on the ground to tell us straight talk way with the parliament on what's happening and for that to be the benchmark on how things are assessed going forward. Not because you've got a bureaucrat, not because you've got a politician, not because you've got some committee assessing it, but because you're hearing it firsthand and direct. And for us, that's a level of empowerment and, you know, will be a level of involvement with this country that we've never seen before. And that's exciting. Exciting, inspirational. Dale Agus, thank you so much for your time today and the conversation. It's been extraordinary. Thank you. Anna Greta, that was an extraordinary conversation. I mean, listening to Dale talk through those issues, there's such a clarity to the the ways in which we can move forward. And he did map out, you know, he made the point that there are multiple ways to move forward, but there's a real clarity to that when we kind of get those central principles clear, those central principles of listening genuinely to what matters to people and to what people say, and to recognising that point that Dale made, that this is and always will be Aboriginal land. And I think that is so important as a starting point 
for having these conversations. There was so much about Dale's Dale's conversation that that really struck me. That story of the vegetable garden, I think is such a powerful one because it demonstrates so deeply the way in which we make assumptions, assumptions that are wrong, and the way in which we try to put band-aids over issues rather than thinking about deep structural causes and instead of asking what those causes are, listening and talking with people. Now, I think that principle of, of talking with people is just so important. But, Anna Greta, I'm going to be reflecting on this conversation for a very long time. What were your immediate takeaways? Uh, look, I had the privilege of listening to Dale alongside Sally Scales and uh, Pat Anderson at the Wome Adelaide Festival earlier this year um, and listening to the three of them telling stories of the importance of this process is quite remarkable. This, at its core, is a shift from doing to people toward doing with people and this central notion of listening and how we communicate and how we care sits at the at the core of this process, the voice referendum. Pat Anderson said something similarly uh, at that conversation at Wome Adelaide, the idea that we've been waiting for you, that our First Nations and Aboriginal uh, peoples around Australia are waiting for the colonisers, for those of us who arrived here in the last couple of hundred years, to sit down and listen to engage in a deep conversation, to listen to First Nations voices and perspectives and to share then a journey moving forward. And I think the, the, the stories that Dale has given us today are extraordinary in their insight into the, that community engagement at the centre uh, and the way in which this has a deep and meaningful change for First Nations people in South Australia, the process, the listening and then the policy change that sits around that. Yeah, Anagreta, when, when Dale made that comment, um, when people had said to him, we've been waiting for you, and he said he felt goosebumps, I think I felt the same. It is such a powerful comment. It's such a powerful idea. And I'm also thinking, Anagreta, of, of something that Pat Anderson said to you and I on a podcast a couple of years ago now, that the ordinary statement from the heart is a gift from the First Nations people to the rest of the country. And when I was listening to Dale talking, now, I was reflecting on that and thinking, what an incredibly powerful and generous gift this is. Um, it's, it's an amazing pathway forward. It's a way to think about who we are and who we want to be. Um, Dale made the point at the end that whichever way Australians vote, um, First Nations people will still be at the heart and the soul of this country. But it is up, I think, to us who are not Indigenous to think about whether we want to accept that gift as a basis for a just, a fair and equitable, a caring and a reconciled future. Mm. I think we're ready to listen and I really think listening is actually at the centre of this discussion. Uh, and so trying not to get caught up too much in the polarising role of media, I think in this debate is actually quite important. Respecting a divergent range of views is important uh, and lots of people with different questions that can come to the table, but it's how we listen to each other, how we address concerns and how we answer questions, which will be central, I think, in, in the quality of the debate and then the ultimate outcome. 
Listeners, this conversation will continue. The, the voice referendum is of central importance to the Australian National University and to the two hosts of this podcast. And so we're really looking forward to bringing you a, a wide range of different perspectives on the voice referendum over the course of the next few months as Australia goes through this process of listening and talking and learning. This podcast is produced by policyforum.net and we'll leave a link to the publications and sources we've discussed in today's show notes. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from people about how they find the podcast. And of course, by leaving us a review, it's a great way for others to find us too. We love hearing from our audience. Please reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or Apps Policy Forum. And you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. And with that, that's all we have time for today. So from me, Anna Greta Hunter, see you next week. And from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now.